is an essential element in the creator is the mysterious. The impenetrable, the profound depth out of which glorious things come, but nobody can see why. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural edition of Grab the Lightning. We're not sure the world needs another podcast, but we are sure the world could use a little more creativity. In art, life, and business, creativity is a superpower that can be the difference maker between success and failure. We talk to some of the world's most creative people to find out how they tap into their creativity so you can learn to better tap into yours. I'm David Carter. And I'm Chris Ford. Today's guest is Toby Barlow. Toby's the author of Sharp Teeth, the Alex Award-winning book about werewolves on the streets of Los Angeles, as well as Baba Yaga, which the LA Times proclaimed, works magic to make the impossible possible. Toby is also a longtime advertising industry creative director, chief creative officer, and all-around awesome dude. Both David and I were fortunate enough to work with many years ago in New York. Today's conversation covers a wide range of topics, everything from Toby's upbringing in a Vermont artist colony to his efforts to help rebuild Detroit through creativity, community, and collaboration. So without any further ado, let's do this. I'm going to start off with this question, Toby, Okay. which is, do you think of yourself as a creative person? I, I do. Um... And think, why? What makes you think that? Well, I think I think I kind of came out of the womb like that. I mean, I think I've always self-identified as a creative person, uh, probably too much so. You know, I probably used it as a justification to slack off on my algebra homework because um, I was creative. Uh, but, you know, from a very young age, I think I was seeing myself, you know, going in either being a visual artist or being a writer or something, um, working film. I don't know. Uh, but, so along those lines, can you um, tell us a little bit about about your background? And if you thought of yourself early on as a creative person, was that encouraged by your parents? Give us the the lowdown there. Yeah, I mean, in a number, in a number of ways, uh, my creativity was encouraged by my parents, especially my mother. Um, I mean, I was, you know, she's a voracious reader, and they were feeding me books, you know, at a young age, and, and, and I was a voracious reader. Uh, and we would go to movies all the time. There was a repertory theater in downtown D.C. where we would go, you know, twice a week to see an old black and white musical or a comedy or, you know, the Harold Maude King of Hearts double feature. Uh, so I, I kind of grew up immersed in that. And then, you know, later my mother actually ended up running, founding and running an arts colony in the Adirondacks. Uh, so when I, my teen years, that's where I would spend my summers. Um, surrounded by writers and painters and poets and musicians, etc. So, you know, the, the atmosphere I grew up in was, was incredibly conducive to being creative. I would say very much so. Yeah. So, <laughs> here's an interesting question, though. So, so that obviously your background obviously revolves around creativity in the arts, um, which is amazing. And one of the things that we want to get to on this explore on this podcast is. Um, creativity in all walks of life. Right. So when you were growing up in that artist colony, um, did you know at that time that you wanted to be a writer or, or some kind of visual artist? Yeah, I was going to be, I was going to maybe be a painter or a writer. I, I actually had a, my, um, a major kind of obstacle when I was trying to become a sort of fine art painter. And I took this, double course art major class in high school and um they just put all the most attractive women in the school into that class <laughs> um and i really got distracted and didn't finish so i ended up getting an f in art uh <laughs> which is i mean it's pretty amazing that i got a worse it's hard grade. to do yeah worse grade in art than i got in in latin um but, uh, so that sort of pushed me into writing, um, you know, but I, I, I think it's a really interesting point, this idea that creativity is, is more than just the creative arts and, and, and the ways that you apply it to, you know, thinking in, in the world. Um, I was talking to someone last night about advertising and how, you know, you always hear it, 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 in the last 15 years sort of storytelling's become 
kind of the big buzzword and it hasn't really gone away in terms of what marketing does. And, but I don't think anybody's really explained what the value is. It still sounds kind of silly, you know, and they'll, they'll be like, well, people have always gathered around campfires listening to the stories. And you're like, yeah, but what does that have to do with, you know, selling cars or watches? But, you know, I, I think that the, the common denominator is when you're writing a story, you know, especially when you're doing a screenplay, it's all about, you know, coming up with uh, actions that drive the characters. You know, what, what makes the woman pick up the bloody knife? What makes the guy scream at his boss, you know, and, and what drives the next decision. And, you know, when you're working on advertising, you're developing a story to drive an action, to drive someone to, you know, the, the logical next step, which is trying that product. Um, so even though it's not, you know, I don't I don't know if actually advertising is as, as uh, much of a fine art um, as it is a craft, but, but I do think it shares that with, you know, the fine art. How did you find your way into advertising from uh, a very creative arts centric background? Yeah. Well, I was in San Francisco um, and I was a really young parent. Like my kid was born when I was 23, right out of college. And I was looking around for a job. Uh, I, I you know, went into all these places, Mother Jones. I was going to be you know, a writer, Rainforest Action Network. I was going to be an environmentalist. And then my uncle was like, why don't you go visit my advertising agency? So I, I wandered into Hal Reine and Partners and um, they'd you know, we're swimming in cash. They just won the Saturn account and they were happy to take in this kind of narrative well nephew, show him around. And they put me in a dark room and they played me the Ronnie Spots. And I'd just come out of college. I hadn't watched television for like, you know, four or five years and uh, I hadn't <laughs> seen any. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, it was Bartles and James and it was Henry Weinhards and it was all this great stuff. And everybody was really nice and I was completely seduced uh, by it. And, um, I was, you know, kind of a, it was like, I was like the last stop on the nepotism express. It was like, you would still, you could still get a job because your uncle, you know, ran a company in those days in a creative department. Um, you know, used to, back in the old days in the fifties and sixties, advertising was where you sent your weird kid who couldn't be a doctor or a lawyer, you like push him into an agency. Um, but this was kind of the tail end of that. So when I showed up, it was, um, kind of, I don't know. It was almost shameful. Everyone was like, oh, you're the client's nephew. You know, it was really kind of embarrassing, uh, but it just made me work harder. And you still got the job. I did get the job. You know, and when and I you called, kept the job. I did. I kept the job for a long time. <laughs> it was a good job. But, uh, yeah, I called my mom, you know, to tell her I'd taken this job in advertising, and, and uh, she wept. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she was... It was a big sellout, you know. It was like, all those double features for nothing. Yeah, it was like it was like an Amish kid saying he was going to go work for Harley Davidson, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I mean, I loved it. I loved I loved the community, uh, and I loved the work. I loved you know getting to understand the products and all that stuff. It was it was using both sides of my brain. So you stayed in advertising for a while. Um, what happened when you left San Francisco? You know, I went to New York for a while, uh, and I worked at Shiat uh, there, and then I worked at JWT there, uh, and then I went back to San Francisco and worked on some technology accounts. And actually, I had a weird thing where I, uh, the, the head of the office would fly me to places for meetings. Um, he'd say, hey, why don't you come to this meeting in San Francisco? And then in the meeting, he would tell the client, Toby has agreed to stay here as long as it takes to solve this and then i would be in and then i was in san francisco for a year and then i got back to new york finally and he said hey you want to go to meet in chicago and i went to chicago and we sat we're there with Kraft, and he said you know toby has agreed to stay here as long as it takes so i lived in <laughs> chicago for a year in the hotel you know and then uh i went back to new york and he's we got a call that like there was a meeting in detroit and i, I said i'm not going i'm not going they leave me there i always get stuck there and everyone's like no no it's cool we're all going together so we all went out to detroit and i i'm the only one who stayed i've been there 10 years i think the the, the detroit thing is pretty interesting one of the I think one of the things I just remember is getting a request to, I don't know if it was an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter for a project called Write a House. Yeah. Yeah. So Write a House was an interesting idea. Um, I met with a, a local writer who said, hey, we should buy one of these big mansions that are for sale cheap. Because back then, you know, nine years ago, you could get a gigantic Indian village mansion for, I don't know, like $150,000. And she said, we could turn it into a big arts colony. And I was like, well, I grew up in an arts colony. And uh, I, one thing I know is I don't want to run one. You know, you end up being like a therapist and a camp <laughs> counselor. And it was, it's a mess. Uh, so, but there were so many. There were like 40,000 empty homes in Detroit. Um, and so I said, what if we could, you know, buy this house, a house. I mean, you could, at, that, at that point, you could have a, a, a small house, a single dwelling. 
in a neighborhood like Hamtramck, you get one for a thousand dollars. That's but amazing. It took about forty, yeah, but it took about forty thousand dollars to fix it up. You know, so the idea was buy these houses, fix them up, and then have writers apply, um, and just based on the quality of their work, uh, give them the house. You know, so. Uh, we had great judges. We had, you know, sort of nationally recognized poets and local artists, local local writers, journalists. Um, and we ended up with, you know, so far we've given away three houses. Um, and the group is working on the fourth one. I, I left the group about a year ago just because I had too much going on. But um, it's been, a, it, I mean, it was a really interesting project. Uh, when, when you think about rebuilding cities and you think about what uh, cities need, a lot of times it's, it's a narrative. Um, you, need, you need people to come and with you know, their feet on the ground and who get connected to communities who can tell the story of that community. You know, I think a lot, well, of people, I, a lot of people moved to New York City because of the stories they heard coming out of New York City. So, so getting to the, again, to the motivation of that, with Detroit. So you moved to Detroit, you have this, this advertising job and you obviously fall in love with the city, but the city's fallen on pretty hard times. So did you actively say, wow, I'd, I'd like to put some projects together that can help rebuild the city or. uh, Yes and no. I mean, actually mostly it was, um, there was sort of a logical flow to how I got kind of pulled into it, which was, you know, the, the, 2008 crisis hit and um, my book sharp teeth had just come out and uh the, the i i've been i'd written an op-ed for the new york times and, and about a, a summer job i'd once had and, and the editor knew that i lived in detroit so he said well w- would you write a short piece about detroit and what it's going through so i wrote a piece called the hundred dollar house um which was about how you could buy a house for a hundred dollars and it caused kind of a media firestorm you know 2020 showed up and dateline showed up and Everybody wanted to talk about this piece, um, and it was it was it was pretty. It caused quite a buzz, uh, and then I wrote a few more pieces for the Times about Detroit and what it was going through, and in the process became kind of you know one of the unofficial spokespeople for Detroit and what was going on. So at that point, there was a slew of documentary filmmakers coming into Detroit, and they would interview people, and so I ended up being in you know a half dozen documentaries and. It, it all became it, it all began to feel a little shallow like this thing is going on and I'm just making commentate you know being a commentator about it I'm, I'm just providing commentary I'm not really putting any skin in the game and I'm not really working to help so that's when I started looking for projects and the first project I did was a place called signal return uh, which is I was down in Nashville and I was visiting the hat show print which is a great letterpress shop down there that did posters for the Grand Old Opry. And I just thought, this would be perfect to, for Detroit. You know, it's it's art, uh, but it's also kind of a crossroads for community, and it's affordable. Uh, so, you know, middle class, uh, and you know, people can be buying really beautiful art because uh, they're not one-of-a-kind pieces. And so I went back and, and collaborated with some people, uh, and, and we ended up opening this spot. Uh, and and opened it in Eastern Market and it was it's been quite successful uh, and and that was a really fun project and then the next thing I did was uh, a design store I opened I just felt like you know Detroit was it was where Charles and Ray Eames met and it was where you know Saarinen grew up and I mean all these fantastic designers had had been there. But it and, it and obviously car design is amazing. Furniture design is huge in the region. So I thought we should have a design store. So I opened this place, Nora. And then I did write a house. And then I did a restaurant. So like one thing kind of led to another. So adding a little color commentary to that, just from a creativity perspective, it's it's kind of like you're confronted with a problem, which is here's this great city that's fallen on hard times. And the problem you want to solve is how can we start to bring this city back to life? So getting to your point about story earlier, you then started to create stories for Detroit that get some notoriety. And now people start talking about Detroit. Other things are happening. I guess my point is for this podcast, creativity is about solving problems. And you, you know, as a as a guy living in Detroit, as a creative guy living in Detroit, a writer, you found ways to help tell Detroit's story. Which yeah, I think is I really mean, interesting. 
I, and I and I think there are a number of ways to do it. And I guess my point was, you can do it by just writing the story, um, or you can do it. You know, I mean, the birth of Signal Return was really an adaptation, right? So it's sort of like when Kurosawa, uh, you know, makes his movie, and then Sierra, uh, Sergio Leone rips it off with a spaghetti western, puts it all in the old west. You know, this is saying, okay, Nashville has this great story about art and affordable art and, you know, presses and neighborhood crossroads and that we can adapt that story to Detroit. And there's no reason to not make it work there. And then I think the other, you know, kind of going back to what is the story and how does it drive decisions? I think, you know, one thing that happens in a city, I think, is that immigrants show up and they don't see the history. They only see a story going forward. They don't look back. And I think one of the issues that Detroit had for a long time was that it, it didn't have a lot of people coming and going. It was a pretty insular place, and people worked in the car industry, and when those jobs disappeared, they left. Um, there weren't a lot of people coming in. So a lot of the people who had been there for a long time would go around, and the stories they saw were old stories. You know, They'd say that empty lot used to be the Hudson's department store, and that empty lot used to be this great seafood restaurant. Whereas if you came in there new as an immigrant, you know, you would look at it and you would say that empty lot could be a great bicycle trail. That empty lot could be a great design store. And, and so that a, a lot of that creativity is just bringing in people who have new perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think one of the interesting things about Ride a House and all these other projects that were similar was was this aspect of community. I think like one of the things people who are creative struggle with a lot of times is feeling alone or like creating in a vacuum. It'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about how you bring people into your, because I mean, none of these things would have happened unless you'd found the people that wanted to do the letterpress or the people that wanted to help fix up the home or the judges that wanted to be a part of it. And yeah, I, I mean, I think that building community is an enormous part of creativity. And I think that sort of that, that idea of the lone artist in the cabin writing the book is, you know, a terrible myth that drives people in completely the wrong direction. Clearly you need the time to create, uh, but you need a community. I mean, you know, Jim Harrison, God rest his soul, one of the best writers in the last you know 30 years, but he grew up in a community with Thomas McGuane and Richard Brodigan and all those guys. And, you know, Sam Shepard was with Patti Smith. And, you know, I mean, you talk about uh, Rauschenberg and Cy Twombly and, and John Cage. I mean, any any great artist you look at pretty much that I can think of in the past, you know, 75 years, you can find a community of artists around them and, and creative people around them. And just think, and that's why I think, you know, in advertising, you love being on a film shoot, you know, because you have... It's like going to camp with all these creative kids and, and a film community is such a, you know, a strong collaborative place. I mean, one of my favorite stories is where uh, Sandy Calder, back when he was kind of a starving artist doing kind of wire circuses or whatever he was doing, and he went, in, he went to visit Mondrian's studio and he was looking at Mondrian's big color grids and Calder said to Mondrian, you know, wouldn't it be great if they moved? And Mondrian said, no. <laughs> and so Calder went home and he made the mobile, you know. Uh, so, you know, I think that that, that idea of bouncing things around and, and, and finding like-minded people or even cross-disciplined people. I was just reading a piece about Oliver Sacks and, and his friendship with the poet Tom Gunn. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's a really, it, it, ha- it has to be encouraged, you know, for, for creative people. It's interesting what you said about film shoots, because I think working in advertising, I think most people who work in advertising, like the most fun they have is on a shoot. And I haven't thought about it long enough to understand why I think the idea of a a big creative camp with a bunch of creative kids is is fun. Yeah. I mean, mean, it's a good analogy for it, because you've got these people that are craftsmen, craftswomen, and all these different disciplines coming together to make this communal project, whether it's a film or a or a commercial or whatnot, but different disciplines. Yeah, different disciplines and a shared focus, you know. And, uh, and in a way, that, that is a lot of what was going on in Detroit when I got there was, you know, I used to say is that, you know, the thing about L.A. is that when you walk into a restaurant, everyone looks at you like, where do I know you from? What show do I know you from? You know, what can you, what can you do, you know, for me? 
and uh, in New York, everyone, you walk into a room and everyone's like, how can you help my career? You know, how can I? And then in, but in Detroit, you'd walk in a room and people would be like, what can we do together? And, and that kind of collaboration was just in the atmosphere all the time. Uh, it felt really, really inspiring. Another thing I'd like to talk about is, so we're, we're in this day and age where we've got all this technology and, you know, you read stories every day about technology is taking jobs away, taking all the boring jobs away from people. Also known as jobs. <laughs> also known as jobs. Yeah. And you've got, there's a large class of people who are very unhappy with their nine to five jobs and they start thinking about how can I get out of this? What can I do on my own? How can I, you know, what's my side hustle? And you, while having a, a, a big time advertising job, managed to write two critically acclaimed novels. Uh, so could we talk about that for a little bit and how that came about, how you found the time to do it? Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, I, I kind of had a breakthrough moment when I was living in San Francisco and um, I had an idea for a screenplay and I was very intimidated by the idea of writing a screenplay. Uh, and I remember I was lying hungover one day and my bed unable to get out just <laughs> brooding on this and then I, it occurred to me that you know a screenplay is about 120 pages and and each you know ideally there's something really smart or funny on each of those pages at least one thing and i thought well you know that's all that my clients asked me to do is write you know an endless series of pages with one smarter funny thing on each page they're just you know 60 second scripts <laughs> or 30 second scripts <laughs> So all I got to do is just do a bunch of those following this narrative thread and I'll have the screenplay done. And it was amazing. It just got it, you know, and that was that was probably my breakthrough moment in terms of realizing that I could get this thing done, you know, if I just took advantage of some extra time. And then, you know, I, I, I had an idea for a novel. Uh, and, and when I was living in this hotel in Chicago, I'd read a book about a dog catcher and uh, he was describing a pack of dogs and how it works and, and, and the dynamic. And he said, you know, at every, in every pack of dogs, there's a female dog in the center. It's like, you know, the pupil in the center of an eye. And, uh, he's, you know, and, and I thought for some reason that if those dogs were werewolves and if that female dog fell in love with that dog catcher, it'd be really, it'd be really weird. Um, <laughs> So I just got up and I started typing and uh, it came out as kind of a, a free verse kind of thing, which I didn't think of it as free verse at the time. I thought it might be captions for a comic book. I thought it might be a piece of art. Will you explain free verse to our listeners? Yeah, free verse is just like, uh, you know, non-metered verse. It, it, it doesn't have a rhythm other than whatever the authors you know, think. So, so why that versus just writing in a, in a kind of a typical novel form you know it just came out that way um for about you know 30 pages uh I, I just i really steamrolled through it and then and then it felt really weird and i didn't know what to do with it so i put it aside for about six months and then it was a little yeah about six months later i i, I had this epiphany that i had to finish every idea i had started <laughs> um, I, that is that's which, a lot yeah at which point there were a lot of them and I put them all on index cards and put them on the wall of my room and just started working my way through them. And one of them was Werewolf Story. Uh, so I pulled out that uh, piece and just kept typing it and was pretty obsessive about it. And it was nice because it was just weird enough to be charming. You know, so if you were at a cocktail party and people are like, so what are you doing? You're like, I'm writing a epic poem about werewolves. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I would get a chuckle. So I just kept going on that. And, and when I finished it, I didn't really know what I had. Uh, and I sent it around. Um, and I, I found an agent who was freshly back from London in New York and who had been, was looking for kind of something to make a difference with. And she was like, if I can sell this, my career in New York will be set. Everyone will know I can sell anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she went and sold it. And it was, it, was a, it was about as big a smash hit as an epic poem can be. About <laughs> I, I'll, I'll never forget when I was... I was walking through Barnes and Noble in Marin and I saw your book and I was like, I guess I was maybe looking for it. And I had heard, I'm like, oh, Toby wrote a book. I'm like, I didn't know what it was about. I thought the cover was super interesting. And then I got it and I opened it up and I started reading it and I was like, what the fuck is this? And then, uh, cause it was like, it's like little sentences one after the next. And I was like, 
I don't know if I can read this. And then I was talking to Carter and we were like, about five or 10 pages in that all just disappears and you get sucked into the story. And uh, all I could think was like after knowing Toby for so long and having him drop all of his art, art guy names and author guy names and famous people names, like he wrote a book about werewolves, which I thought was, it was just so surprising. And um, I don't know, super entertaining, but like, I just, I thought it was, I don't, I just don't know how you ended up there. I think it's, it's an amazingly strange place to end up, but I'm, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Well, it was good. Likewise. Uh, thanks. The, um, you know, the nice thing about writing about imaginary beasts is that you get to make up your own rules and you don't have to do a lot of research. You know, there's not a lot of actual experts on werewolves out there who are going to contradict me. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, for a time stressed person working in imaginary worlds is a great place to be. I think it's smart. Like, I think one of the things that is super interesting to me is from the, standpoint of this podcast is if empowering people to kind of like do things and i think finding smart ways to remove barriers like that to you know embark upon a project where you don't have to worry about experts getting in the way of messing with your shit is pretty smart yeah well i mean and i mean honestly there were a lot of other projects that i did in that stretch that uh didn't pan out as well that that turned out to be (laughs) as ridiculous as they sounded you know so I was glad that that one, which you know did take the most effort, was was the most well received. So, in getting that finished, was it just? A, I mean, because you had a day job, so you had to, you know, this was writing at night on the weekends. Like, how did you, you know, pull yeah. It off? Yeah, it was it was writing at night and on the weekends. It was being sort of selfish and indulgent with my time, um, and and just recognizing that this was an important thing to me. I mean, it was kind of it was it was handy. It got me out of things I didn't want to do. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a nice thing about being creative is that you get to be selfish. But, it, you know, it, it turns out we have a lot of time. You know, people are like, how do you how do you get so much done? It's like, well, if you don't, you know, if you don't spend your weekend watching football, that's that's like six hours, you know. I think if you just gave up the Internet, I mean, everybody could probably write if you just give up one, something, just give up one platform on the Internet. You know, just give yeah. up, I mean, I. I gave up Facebook. Uh, I mean, I've cut it down significantly, and it, and it's amazing. It's like you know, th- those are hours upon hours of time, and you can, you can be incredibly productive with it. And and I think that you know, there's a feeling that there's creativity on the internet, but I think it's sort of like you're 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 stuck in a moibus strip. You're just kind of going around and around, and and nothing really tends to break out of it that creates anything standalone beautiful. Did you find yourself like always writing at certain times or did you? No, I was really catch as catch can. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my work schedule was so erratic, you know, working weekends or working late and traveling, et cetera. So I would, you know, I'd find myself in a Shanghai hotel room with jet lag writing from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Uh, and then just right. sleeping for a couple hours or getting, you know, getting up early and writing or Saturday afternoon or whatever. But it, you know, I, I, I believe that discipline in writing is really important, but enthusiasm is a pretty good replacement. You know, if you're just kind of crazy about the thing you're doing, you'll find the time to do it. You don't need to be regimented about it. I think that's a really important point. I mean, enthusiasm can't be underestimated for the motivational power that it gives. And th- absolutely. I mean, I honestly think enthusiasm is the craziest, most important ingredient ever. You know, I'm a very bad dancer, uh, but I am a very enthusiastic dancer. (laughs) And uh, people like dancing with me, you know? And uh, I think that the same, you know, it it, it applies across the board. It's it's sort of some, it's like a corollary to fake it till you make it. You know, if if you're just enthusiastic about it, it doesn't really matter if you're faking it or if you're sincere. I mean... With so, the exception of like surgery or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so another motivational question I have is what is it for you personally, and, and maybe you haven't thought about it, but what is it that what is the creative urge for you? Like why do you feel the need to be creative and make something? What whatever it is, whether it's a, a widget or yeah. a book or a poster or yeah, well, I think, I mean, for me, there I, are I, those different phases of life, right? That idea of, you know, making dreams into reality uh, is, I think, a very primitive desire. You know, you literally have dreams at night, and you literally wake up, and you have no idea what you're supposed to do with that. And I think that frustration 
drives a lot of early creativity in, in some really primitive way. But but later, and I think for me at least, it was just frustration with feeling like a fuck up because I had so many ideas and so little to show for it. So it was like, look, interesting. You know, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to weigh this idea, and either it's a good idea, and and therefore you have to do it, or just forget you even had the idea. Just stop being so you know silly, or or, or stop trying to act like it's an important thing. You know, so if you have, if I have an idea about a TV show now, when I'm on a walk, I'll be like, you should do blankety blank. You know, I'll go and I'll write to the three people I know who work on TV shows and say, do you think there's any interest in this? And what should we do? And I'll see if there's any energy or if there's anything. And then I'll write a treat. You know, I mean, it's like chase it down and be a serious person. You know, don't be frivolous, uh, especially with creative ideas. And, and again, to your point. It's not just a book. I mean, I just developed this app, and it was because I was walking in London talking to somebody, and I was like, you know, be, you know, this thing would be cool. Da, da, da. I'm like, okay, <laughs> it sounds <laughs> sounds pretty good, and so we had to. It took three years, but we made it. So I just think that you know, and and then obviously you know you want to have. I think there's a, also a primitive instinct of wanting to have, and I think it's some super weird derivative of just the, the, the selfish gene, um, you know, wanting to create something that outlasts you. And I, I think that that's a, a huge driver in, in, in creative desire. Um, but it's just weird, right? It's like the selfish gene exists to propagate the gene. I don't, you know, I don't but know I mean, you could, you could argue that, that creativity is an evolutionary impulse. I would definitely argue that. I mean, I think it's definitely, you know, at some point, Herodotus, for some reason, decided to write down the entire Persian War. And that, you know, at some point, somebody was like, God, that song that Homer's been singing, which is so fucking long, we better write that one down. Like, why? <laughs> you know, why? And yet, when it happened, it caught, it was a contagion that kind of continued, you know, on through civilization. So we're just at this, and we keep spawning it wider and wider and wider. So there's definitely something primitive that makes us want to do it i'm just not sure if it's actually is it is it a necessity or, or is it you know i mean one of the things i've been really meditating on the past few months is something a friend said to me he, you know it was just he goes a spider is born knowing how to make a web and that to me is a really interesting idea of it's like if you were born knowing how to build a house and and that would that could withstand you know the storm um is is there a part of the creative process that like you get the most satisfaction out of? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I think it's all satisfying. I think, I mean, I like, I mean, obviously the, the spark of the first idea is like an electric thing. And uh, I, I think the idea of flushing things out is really satisfying. You know, finding the, finding the body inside the block of stone. I think the feedback from people uh, as you go through the process or when you get to finish the process is you know, obviously very satisfying to the ego, though it's probably the most destructive and wasteful part of it. You know, It's nice to get the positive reinforcement, but it doesn't really make it. Because you'd said earlier that seemed interesting was that so many ideas and so little to show for it. And I, I feel that a lot of times. I feel like if you've, you've got something, you have to finish it, but then when you can't finish it, you end up beating yourself up for not finishing it. Yeah, I think the finished thing is a hugely satisfying thing. It's like the spider's web, right? It's, it's in and of itself. But so, so yeah, hitting that last period in a book is pretty good. But th by that time, you're in kind of some fever dream anyway. So, you know, it doesn't, it's not like, ah, I'm done. <laughs> you know, it's, well, there's also a, a point for me, it comes fairly early on where you've had the idea and you, you're, the enthusiasm is there and then you start digging into it and then you're like, oh, wow, this is really becoming hard work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's where like, you, you have to maintain that enthusiasm or try to maintain that enthusiasm because a lot of times bringing these ideas to life takes a lot of hard work. Yeah, and the, and the work is, you know weird i mean it's it's so psychological there's i think it's edith hamilton somebody had this great quote or edith sitwell rather had this quote about how you know in art you have to put your very skin and i remember being in la one night in an effects house finishing a commercial that i liked but it had taken so much work to keep the spot a spot i liked uh to not have it be screwed up by compromises here and there and i remember laying down and just feeling like i'd lost a kidney on a fucking commercial, and I, I was just like, God, you know, it, 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 it is, 
I think it was actually, uh, I heard an apocryphal tale, or not an apocryphal tale, I t- heard a story once about uh, a, a head of a famous head of an agency was talking to a friend, and he asked him, you know, when, when you make ads, do you like to do, like, you know, well, scale of one to ten, what do you aim for? And my friend said, well, I, I aim for a ten. I want to make the best. And the head of the agency said, yeah, you know, a lot of people get hurt when you make a ten. I like fives and sixes. <laughs> They're easier. <laughs> no one gets hurt. And I think that that's true for, you know, when you have a creative vision that's really strong. Uh, it, it can hurt to get there. Well, certainly, at least stories on from the filmmaking world, directors demanding directors who want to make the best film, oftentimes those film sets can be not a fun place to be, very contentious. Yeah, but uh, and 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 I bet it's the same number ratio of nice sets to awful sets as it is nice movies, great movies to awful movies. But I bet there's no correlation between an awful set and an awful movie, you know, a nice set, a nice movie. I think it's just, it, you know, there's so much crap out there. There's so much bad work being done, whether it's a novel or whether it's a movie or whether it's a commercial. And I think that people think that they need to be awful to do great things and, and that they need to, you know, force it there. But I'm not sure that that's true. I think you can be exacting without being awful. I would agree. Yes. So moving on to another area of your life, Toby, I know you are concerned about the world, politics, the environment. You are active in certain ways, but I think creativity, when applied to areas like that, could solve a lot of these problems. The problem being there aren't too many people being creative in politics or or in environmental activism. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that Political. I mean, my political hero is Paul Wellstone, who was a senator from Minnesota. Who Minnesota was, senator. Yeah, a great, a great American, and he won his seat partly. I mean, partly because his politics were great and he was great, but partly because he had some fantastic commercials. Um, he had like some of the most wonderful political advertising ever, uh, and. I was so surprised that people didn't run with that. You know, that people didn't kind of go, "Wow, look, this like Cinderella story candidate won." And it was partly because he he did really really smart, you know, funny, compelling advertising. I don't. I I think that when you get into those worlds, there's just so much arrogance and opinion on both sides. You're always in the room with really smart people who want you to know how smart they are. And uh, it just it, it, it's not a process that drives you know great creative work. You know, but in terms of so even beyond even beyond creative work in the advertising realm yeah. of politics, what about creative problem solving in politics? Well, I think that uh, the the issue there is partly just the, the systematic nature of things, right? So somewhere in my mid thirties, my mantra became "It's all about the infrastructure." And you, you, when you realize that you know things don't get done unless there are systems there to make them happen, and the political systems that we have uh, are kind of weirdly entrenched. Um, you know, the, the money that's in politics, the kind of I don't know. It's it's a, it's a really it's a really hard place to make a difference. I mean, I. I, I think that there are a lot of creative solutions to be had, but they might just be in very strange places like, uh, you know, voter registration drives. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, it, it, it's hard to say where exactly. I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a really good question. You know, how do you how do you challenge these systems? But they're such large and so well systems and they're so well financed. You know, it's like it, it, it's very David and Goliathy. Super David and Goliathy. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think also too. Another problem is, I mean, I remember when open source coding came along, and I and I was literally like, "This is going to solve everything." You know, you're going to have all these Linux coders figuring out every problem and making all this free stuff and figuring out how to, you know. And it turned out, no, it's just a bunch of people trying to figure out how to be rich. And I think that 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 kind of endless quest to get the millions of dollars that you think will make you safe and happy. It gets in the way of people coming up with creative solutions that actually help. I think that's an interesting sentiment that kind of applies to anything creative. It seems like when you put the the dollars ahead of the idea or your passion or whatever it is you're trying to do, it somehow takes you down the wrong path. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I'm sure there are just as many examples to the contrary. But but for myself, 
I, I mean, you, if if you wanted to make a million, you know, ten million dollars in publishing, you probably wouldn't have written a book about werewolves in Los Angeles. Yeah, and and then you know, but I ended up selling the rights to that to Hollywood, you know, a couple of times. I mean, it, so you don't know where where it's going to come from. And I think that the interesting thing is that uh, you know, people don't want predictable things; they want weird things; they want to be surprised. So you've got to go to weird places. And weird places don't feel like gold mines. Weird places feel like places where you're going to get laughed out of the room. So, you know, each, each exercise is uh, sort of a, a, a journey into a, a really, you know, exploring a, a really desolate land, a desolate, strange land. And, and sometimes you find gold, but you have to not go in search of gold. You have to go, go just to explore. Yeah, I guess I guess maybe what I'm saying is like it's the starting point that counts, and if the starting point is going in search of gold, a lot of times you don't find it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know I I I think that you 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 have to have something driving you. You know, you have to have something whether you want to impress your friends or whether you want to get laid or whether you want to get have have money or um, just you want to or you want to be this person. You know, this is the this this is your self actualization, is to create this. So any one of those can be a driver. I, I I do think. I mean, I would hate to say. I'd hate to be so idealistic to say that you can't say I'm going to go make money by writing X and not have it work out. I just don't think it's the best way to make money. So if we could maybe get into some process questions, do you have a specific process when you for coming up with ideas or sitting down to work out ideas or how does it work for you? You know, uh, I don't really have a, other than a, a, a kind of a big gathering, you know, of just pulling, I mean, I do a lot of index cards. I write ideas down on index cards and keep a stack of index cards. I think there was some David Lynch quote where he talked about how, you know, write every weird idea down on an index card. And when you have like 150 of them, you have a movie. Uh, <laughs> that which, feels about right. Yeah. Uh, so I think I ripped that off. But um, otherwise, you know, for me, it's just, I mean, I walk a lot. And I think walking is an incredibly, you know, good way to generate creative ideas. But it's, it's pretty catch-as-catch-can with me. I think walking is undervalued as a creative tool. Like, man, if you just go for a walk, like, usually something happens on that walk. Yeah, the greatest thing and, about going for a walk is that you're really, it's a pretty safe activity. <laughs> you know, you're not, there's not a big chance of falling down and, or getting hit by something, you know, as long as you're not looking on your phone on a crosswalk. I mean, you, so, so you can really, your mind, I think, and you're away from everything. So your mind really opens up. It's like, you know, a, a, a blooming orchid or something. It's, it's a really fantastic speed for thought. What do you think the, the qualities are that people could cultivate to help them become a more creative person? You know, I, it's very funny. I've been thinking about this a lot this summer. I'm reading a fantastic book, this T.C. Boyle book called Water Music. And, um, and I'm kind of hating myself as I'm reading it because I'm so self-conscious of myself as a writer as I read it. You know, I just want to be kind of stupider and, and less ego-driven as I'm reading it. I just want to you know, enjoy it. Uh, but but I think that that's something that you kind of have to shift like gears. You know, you have to kind of go let great ideas and great events and and you know museum exhibits and books and things wash over you uh, and soak them up and just truly enjoy them. And then you have to you have to read things like and look at things like you're an artist or like you're a creator. You know, like what would I do with that? How would I add to that? You know, what would my how would I re- rewrite that and and capture them and be and be proud of ideas, I think, I think is another big thing. You know, even if they feel stupid, like a werewolf epic poem, you know, be, be, <laughs> be a little bit cocky about it. It's like, fuck, yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, confidence is important. Yeah, confidence and enthusiasm, you know. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that both of those just go tremendous. And, and in a weird way, also assuming the win. You know, just seeing seeing that it's going to get done and it's going to be good, and you're going to do the dog work to get there. But but seeing seeing, you know, visualizing the thing done is is a, is a good way to go. But also, yeah. So so and 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 in that is that idea of finishing it. That you're a commitment when you have a really 
a, an idea that catches you, a commitment to, fin to doing it and finishing. So we've talked about this a little bit, but one of our contentions with this podcast and in general is that creativity can be a can be the difference maker between success and failure. And again, that's not so much in the in the art world because you can you know you can make a painting and you've made a painting, and if you just made it for yourself, then it, then great. But in term in the business world, creativity can be a success multiplier. Do you share that view? Do you think that's... Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it, it, it depends on the business and the situation. Uh, I mean, for challenger brands, absolutely. You know, for big established brands, they're just there to grind it out. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't really watch football, but, you know, when you when you watch a game or a good passing game versus a ground game, ground, nothing's more boring than a ground game. You know, it's just like they just get those five yards you know, after five yards versus like, a, a you know, a beautiful long pass. And... and so I, I definitely think that creativity will will help in situations where you I don't know how to put this. I mean I think that let's put it this way: the only way we're going to beat the robots is with creativity. And, and and if we don't beat the robots, we're all doomed. And <laughs> you know, and I mean that both literally and figuratively, right? I, uh, I would agree. I would agree. And so you know, the robots out there are the are the big established ideas and the big established systems and and. Uh, you know the big established companies, and they, you know they've got their infrastructure and their tentacles, and they're just you know. And, and and the other thing that I just think that creativity does is, and I've been working a lot on solar energy and and uh, renewable energy, and I mean talk about going up against systems like you know you go up against the the oil industries, etc. It, it 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 does feel like you're you know tilting at windmills, but they but they've slowly kind of been able to chip away at it, and I think that they've done it by you know, selling a dream and, and a dream is, you know, the ultimate creative thing. And they sell it, sell a dream of a better world. I have this theory that, uh, if you look at the campaign promise of, of Obama, which was hope, and you look at the campaign promise of Trump, which was make America great again, they're the same promise. Just one is, you know, written by someone with a bit more of an efficient use of the English language. <laughs> uh, but but they're you know but they're both selling a, a, a you know a dream and you know that that's what that's what creativity is it's a dream and and so you have to you have to give people alternative stories and alternative narratives and, and drive them to decision by by providing them with dreams i think that's really good do you have a a piece of advice that you've heard from somebody or that you would give to someone who would like to be more creative yeah, I mean, I think um, stay stay away from social media as much as you can <laughs> uh, would be a good start. I think that, you know, use your hands as, as much as you can. I think that, that that idea of the connection between what the hands do and how the mind works is really important. So handwriting things or drawing things, you know, I, I, think, I think it's really important. And then immerse yourself in something that has nothing to do with creativity, whether it's like beekeeping or sailing boats or you know whatever it is playing tennis because I, walking walking but i just think <laughs> you need to I, I just think you need to free yourself from the expectation a lot i think that we the creative people put a lot of pressure on themselves i think that that becomes blinding and and you know i just think you need to to break for, free of that and finish everything that's the hard part yeah, finishing but, it my favorite quote is the you know that steve jobs real artist ship is that what he said yeah yeah, he was arguing with some engineer, and the artist, was, and the engineer's like, you know, the code's not done. You know, he's like, well, hurry up. He's like, well, you know, I'm an artist. He's like, real artists ship. <laughs> and I get always that just, shit done. Get the shit done. Go. It's good advice. Yeah. Uh, what else? Oh, there was one thing you asked about in the setup that I wanted to talk about, which was the, you asked about hacks. Aha. Um, uh -huh. Yes. And, uh, one of one of my favorite hacks I have come up with in the past few months is just make the soup stock, and I love I'm in love with making the soup stock. And if you think about it as a creative metaphor, you know you just a lot of times again if you want to get going on a screenplay or you want to get going on an idea, you you know you feel like that first draft has to be amazing. You know I, I was actually listening to the guy who does the TV show Fargo, and he was saying you know that basically the whole show he writes it and it's really just the first draft that he writes that becomes the show and i was so fucking angry you know because <laughs> a I'm, I'm pretty sure he's lying um <laughs> and b 
it's just an incredibly, even if it's true, it's an incredibly destructive thing to say to creatives, I think. So to me, the soup stock thing is, you know, when, when you're making a soup, to do the soup stock, you just, you, it's this fantastic process. Like, get some water, chop an onion roughly, don't even peel it, throw it in the water. Take, throw a bulb of garlic in the water. Like, just throw stuff in. Don't even, don't even do anything really to it. You just throw a whole head of celery in and let it boil, you know? And it's just the most caveman-like prom- process. But, in, you know, and then you let it boil for a while, and then you strain out all the junk, and you've got a soup stock. And then you start making the soup. But that first process, that kind of rough caveman, just get going with it, let's just not be precious, I think is a really important part of the creative process. I think that's a super awesome metaphor because, you know, I think part of the hope with this podcast for anybody who's listening would be to dispel the myths. And I think it is destructive to hear that someone writes an epic Emmy award-winning TV show as a single draft and then hands it in and it gets made into a show. Like, I think it really is about making the stock and getting, you know, putting pen to paper and just working on the idea. Yeah, just get going. You know, I mean, Steinbeck threw out a whole draft of Grapes of Wrath. He just was like, this isn't any good. And he talked, and 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 then he, wrote a beautiful novel so you can just kind of just get going and if it sucks it sucks and then you try it again i think you know it's part of that And it might be great it might be beautiful and nobody cares fine i mean i think that that's what goes back to that idea of don't don't be in it for the remuneration you know you want to be in it for something else because there's such a great chance that nobody's gonna really give a damn but as long as you give a damn i guess in the end is sort of the you made something you know i mean people make sandcastles that get washed out with a high tide I mean, you made something. You know, there's the whole the whole sand painting uh, Indian tradition. You know, you just you do something beautiful, and the wind blows it away. But you made you made something. Let's all go make something. Toby, thank you. My pleasure for being our first guest on this inaugural podcast. <laughs> inaugural. That's a big word, Mr. Carl.